Welcome to the Maritime Podcast. You're listening to Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. Today we are in conversation with Allard Kasseline, CEO of the Port of Rotterdam. You will hear from Allard about supply chain disruption, the impact of Russian sanctions, the role of technology in improving efficiency, and environmental initiatives, including green corridors. Welcome to the Maritime Podcast, Allard. Nice to be here. Port of Rotterdam, largest port in Europe, um, one of the largest ports in the world. Perhaps you could just give us a brief overview of performance last year and how it's been going in the first quarter of this year. Yeah, my pleasure. We had a good and strong year in uh, in 2021, basically recovering from the dip we experienced in the year before as, uh, as a consequence of COVID. We made up for all the volumes uh, lost in that COVID year. A strong performance, um, throughput uh, across all these sectors performing very well, possibly the exception of the agricultural business, but all the other sectors, dry bulk, wet bulk, containers, strong, record of 15.3 million TEU throughput. So throughout, very pleased. Investment levels, pretty much according to plan, we tend to invest approximately some 250 million euros per annum. Uh, some major projects well underway, also some major projects uh, commissioned, and we might we might refer to that later. But uh, altogether, um, a, a, a good pro, pro program uh, with a lot of potential also in the areas of digitization, energy transition promising interactions with coalition partners across the industry, uh, private and public, and well underway to really make a difference in uh, applying digital solutions uh, to improve the value chain and reducing the CO2 footprint. So all in all, uh, a strong year, strong performance, strong financial performance, uh, very pleased with the portfolio. The early part of this year is a, is, is a kind of a continuation. Uh, we never give out a forecast of a year, uh, but uh, let's say that we felt when we put together the plan that 2022 was likely to show something similar as to 2021, with possibly some slight and relatively small increases in some of the areas. So we were anticipating a somewhat comparable year as to 2021, but uh, clearly uh, the current uh, Ukraine crisis is uh, is. Uh, adding a lot of uncertainty to the market, not immediately noticeable already in the first uh, three months, slight delays in some cargoes, but altogether the first three months reasonably well within plan and according to plan, uh, but the outlook is uh, clearly very, very uncertain as a consequence of the Ukraine crisis. There's a number of things you touched on there that I'll come back to later in this podcast. You mentioned there the Ukraine crisis. Perhaps you could tell our listeners just a little bit more on how that has impacted cargo and vessel calls. We've seen container lines you know, not calling Russia and so forth. So the Ukraine crisis has a potential significant impact on, on Rotterdam. Uh, some 62 million tons of, of throughput is, is Ukraine, Russia, type related. Between 20 and 30% of coal, mineral oil products, crude oil, LNG has a, a origin in, in, in Russia. And Europe has uh, implemented several sanctions, um, 
those sanctions are currently related to goods that might have a dual purpose, that is a civil or military purpose. So there's uh, restrictions of export of such goods. That means and has as an implication that those goods need to be checked and, 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 and uh, validated. So there's a, a congestion challenge in the handling of cargo. And if new sanctions are imposed, then you basically start all over again. So even if there's there's some four to five thousand containers currently awaiting inspection and or have just recently been released, uh, but if then there's new sanctions implemented, then you need to check them again, right? So the initial sanctions were related to dual purpose. The subsequent sanctions were related to a value of more than three hundred euros. Now there's then uncertainty related to that value. Is that retail value? Is it wholesale value? Is it value for uh, six chairs sold as a pair or is it value of 300 euros per chair? So I'm just kind of indicating that implementation of the sanctions and when they are issued is a challenge in its own right and then subsequently the manpower required to address the various perspectives. It's not unlikely that further sanctions will follow and that might be related to individuals having a stake in in Russian shipping lines. Uh, But as we speak, there's a reflection on whether import of coal from Russia should be sanctioned and or Russian vessels should be sanctioned. Listeners, obviously sanctions are a rapidly evolving situation, and shortly after this interview, the EU banned Russian flagged vessels from calling its ports and coal imports from August this year. From a more societal perspective, you also get into the discussion, so if, if, if there's an energy ban, what implications may it have on industries? Is there a shortage of products? If there's a shortage of products, is there a a, 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 uh, a train of thought that would stipulate when industries should be scaled down and or might incur the consequences thereof. So it's a continuous reflection, takes a lot of effort by all the parties in the value chain to ensure that we uh, have a, as seamless as possible logistics value chain still in place. So it's quite a sort of complex and evolving situation now. Could you give an idea of how much sort of cargo as a whole from the port is impacted by this? Yeah, so the 62 million is about 13% of our total throughput. Over 470 million throughput is about some some 13% maybe impacted. At this juncture, not all of it yet. Uh, Indeed, container liners have stopped transporting goods to Russia. Um, There's a lot of Western industries that, of course, have withdrawn from Russia. Uh, Some of the IOCs have declared that they will not purchase Russia cargo anymore. And it will take a while before, of course, alternative means of supply and trade flows will emerge. I mean, for instance, if there's a ban on coal, it's very likely that the coal currently coming from Russia will be replaced by coal coming from somewhere else. And it may be Australia, maybe Brazil, maybe. But there's an immediate disruption. So the immediate impact is clear. There will be diversion of uh, cargo flows. There will be other uh, financial uh, consequences for the industries uh, that rely on it. But ultimately, it will reestablish itself. However, Europe is so dependent on Russian energy that it's truly very worrying that if there was an immediate sanction on all of the energy sources, then it will have major ramifications on the industrial facilities, for instance, in a port area, and some 50% of our total volume is hydrocarbon related. So if there's a 
there's a lot of diesel imports from Russia. If, if, if there's a diesel shortage, and, and it means that industries need to scale down and or goods cannot be moved from A to B and, and trucks will be requested to sit idle. You can imagine how many macroeconomic implications will subsequently be happening. And that, that's what concerns us very much, of course is all how that plays out. You touched, though, on the energy side, you know, the largest bunkering port in that part of the world as well. Yeah. Is there an impact in terms of fuel imports from Russia? At this point in time, not yet. And we have a, a strategic stock situation in the country of some, uh, some, some, some 90 days. Diesel itself, at the latest numbers I've seen as of yesterday, was we had a stock of 29 days at that point in time. So yes, it's it's conceivable that if there's a full sanctioning of diesel exports, then that will have its implications on our ability to serve the market. That's not inconceivable. Okay, so that's something that's a future concern rather than... Yeah, at this point in time, there's no shortage of any goods or materials. It's it's predominantly at this point in time, the concern how to keep the yard moving, how to ensure that there's no, if you like, disruption in the supply chain of the movement of goods from A to B. Okay, disruption of the supply chain, I think, is probably one of the biggest themes of maritime and shipping last year. It was, um, yeah. And obviously you're talking about disruption coming from the Russian sanctions in this particular case. But looking at the broader picture, does supply chain disruption, is it here to stay in 2022? Um, Yeah, I'm afraid that would be my best guess at this point in time. And that's for several reasons. One is indeed the Ukraine uh, crisis. Uh, The other reason is that um, we haven't come out of the supply chain disruptions as a consequence of COVID and the, and the Suez Canal mayhem. So everyone was contributing to trying to readdress the challenges in the supply chain. But then as we are experiencing not only that Ukraine crisis, but we're experiencing lockdowns in parts of China now already again. So COVID is still here with us and um, and 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 I'm also aware that if new capacity does come on stream it's not likely before year end so with an existence of an, and presence still of covid with the ukraine crisis with new capacity coming on stream only towards the, the the later part of this year I don't believe that there's an opportunity to redress the constraints currently in the system. So I think the disruptions and the consequences of the initial disruptions will be felt throughout the year and possibly well into next year already. So it's something you see continuing. Actually, when you were speaking the other day, mentioned about the schedules for the the shipping lines, if, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Do you see any improvement on that front or is that still...? No, the schedules are still are still poor. Now, in Rotterdam, we do everything in our powers to ensure that the, the turnaround is as quickly as possible. And I'm, I, we compare the numbers, uh, the dwell time, but also how quickly we get cargo out of the yard to the customer. And, and I, I, I think I'm uh, not too biased to state that our, our operational efficiency at Rotterdam is very strong. But if you look at the extent to which uh, liners are out of schedule in many of the other ports and how long it takes and and look at the pictures of uh, the um, congestion in in LA and and clearly that needs improvement and I think the the liners should 
set themselves a, a very high aspirational goal to get back on schedule as soon as possible. But as I said, that will take extra capacity. And it's not only capacity in vessels, because there's such a strong demand. It's also the entire value chain also connecting to the hinterland. So what's the land side of things? And to my knowledge, at this point in time, yes, we need extra capacity at the seaside, but we certainly need extra capacity at the land side to uh, help the liners get back on schedule. Uh, you mentioned there about the port's efficiency and, and the land side there. How can the port itself help manage the situation that we've got at the moment? Well, to do everything in our powers to make that handling of goods as efficiently as possible. So one of the, one of the opportunities that we're pursuing is, is, is safe trade lanes and efficient trade lanes and electronic trade lanes. And so take a bit of the burden away of a trade lane process and take a bit of the paperwork away, even all of the paperwork away, or take a bit of the double checks and double validations away by having one entity or uh, conduct the, the validation and then, then release the goods if there's a trusted party associated to it. So we're working through various solutions from a digital premise and deliver added value to our customers to operate more efficiently and thus by being more efficiently, hopefully, uh, redressing the congestion. If you're enjoying listening, make sure you never miss an episode of the Maritime Podcast by subscribing on the app of your choice. Could you explain to our listeners a bit about the role that technology plays in sort of improving operations and optimizing <coughs> things so that you, know, you are more efficient? Well, there's, there's several, whether it's an electronic bill of lading or whether it's a port call optimization or whether it's a, a very efficient route planning system. I think as a port, we're, we're developing various opportunities and solutions that should enable and help our customers become more efficient. If a forwarder in inland China seeks to get uh, products to well into Germany, then we have a planning tool that would show the most efficient route how to get there with also, for instance, the least CO2 footprint. So we, we provide information, we make information available, similar on port call optimization. If, if we have an ETA, if we know when a cargo is released, if we know when a tugboat needs to be there and or a pilot needs to be there and or a bunker barge and or a fuel barge, we try and help and offer technological solutions by uh, digital solutions by sharing that information uh, and, and allowing the service providers to make propositions that are appealing to the customers, right? It's not our role to develop all those propositions, but we wish to offer them the platforms from which they can make such propositions so that customers can operate more efficiently, cut waste and uh, cut costs, uh, cut emissions. Uh, if, if a ship sails blissfully ignorant from one port to another, uh, and then subsequently uh, sit idle at port or outside port for several days, then there's fuel burned, uh, emissions created that could have been avoided. So there's various perspectives where the technological solutions that we provide them with will create value for our customers. And you're seeing a demand from your customers? Yeah, 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 we do, we do, we do. We're at this juncture where many parties in the value chain consider the mere fact that they have access to data, that the data itself represent a particular value. So there's a somewhat of a reluctance by those that are not intimately familiar with the opportunity that could be 
developed um, by by not and and thus they they're reluctant not to sh to to share the data. We believe that the data should be shared, uh, in, in particular the most relevant data, as I said, an ETA uh, point in time when cargo is discharged, point in time when cargo, ultimate time, uh, last point in time cargo can be delivered to the terminal when customs releases the product. Some of the key data should be sh should be readily made available so that the service providers, the businesses, can actually develop quality services for their customers. And leveraging that information into a, a, a service that is uh, of value. Now, we're advocates of the mere fact that some of the data should be uh, shared, uh, accessible, uh, available on platforms, and then the added value services can be developed. So that that, that data sharing is still an issue? Is, is an issue, uh, uh, and, and we're working our working hard on uh, and collaborate with uh, those parties in the value chain and the trade that, that see the value of approaching it from this perspective. So we have a, a number of initiatives that we're also now wanting to develop with Singapore to assess how we could show clear pathways, a proof of concept, if you like. And once we've, we've been able to establish that, uh, clearly we will be transparent and share that information and then we would expect others in the business to follow. I look forward to seeing that and seeing that sort of cooperation yeah. um, to optimize uh, global trade. You touched a little bit on emissions. One of the things we're seeing at the moment is building up infrastructure and looking at new green fuels for the future. What is the Port of Rotterdam doing on in terms of infrastructure for green fuels? Yeah, so I think in the next decade or a bit, we will see the deployment of the various alternative fuels, right? We will see methanol, we will witness ammonia, we might see some other bio biofuels, synthetic fuels, we may see LNG with carbon capture. So we'll see different fuels emerging and diff different organizations, uh, liners, uh, enterprises will, will will have their own technical solutions to the challenges associated. We believe as a, as a, as a major hub and bunker bunkering hub, at this point in time, we make no choice. We do not have a preference. And we just wish to ensure that all those, if you like, the, the necessary infrastructure and the necessary product will be available for our customers, whomever, whatever their choice will be. So we will we be agnostic from that perspective and wanting to provide the infrastructure for ammonia or for LOHC or for LNG or for biofuels, wanting to make sure that there's sufficient supplies available and that this necessary infrastructure is available. Then over time, it's also likely that there will be a preference and it might be related to journeys, it may be related to source, it may be related to preference, it may be related to logistics. We will see an emergence of preferences and you can imagine that point-to-point -point, uh, ferry uh, movements, um, they might actually go for electrification and others may have stronger belief in the biofuels and third parties may be stronger believers in synthetic fuels. So we will, we will be participating in providing the solutions necessary uh, related to the choices the liners will want to make. So basically preparing for a multi-fuel future by the sounds of it. At, at this point in time, 
I have no additional information related to the technologies that I have any right to state that one is likely to be better than another. So yes, we keep our options open. There's, as I said, uh, uh, Shell is sailing uh, liquid uh, hydrogen. Uh, Aramco believes that LNG with carbon capture and storage is feasible or bio LNG may be feasible. Uh, Maersk has chosen for the methanol route uh, and another party will, will prefer the ammonia. So over the next decade or so, I would expect these all to emerge and then will be more clarification in due course. Understood. Um, one thing we've heard quite a bit of talk about this week has been green corridors. Yeah. Is that something that the Port of Rotterdam is involved in? Yeah, we are and we will because green corridor is, is, is an idea. But yes, you can imagine that, um, again, from a point-to-point perspective, uh, a very efficient green corridor could be created between Singapore and Rotterdam. Uh, and shuttle back and forth, uh, cargo and, and both both ports having the same infrastructure, but also the same technology and the same rules, regulation, uh, operational uh, guidelines, safety precautions. So we, we, we try and, and reach out to like-minded and similarly advanced ports, and, and Singapore is one of them. And, and one of the exciting ideas that we have is to create a green corridor between Singapore and Rotterdam for particular cargo with particular front runners. And I'm very excited about that opportunity. And we will work very hard together with our colleagues from Singapore uh, and the various liners, uh, sort of private enterprises, to make that a meaningful proposition and start piloting that rather sooner than later. That's something certainly you look forward to hearing more about once it becomes uh, a firm project. And obviously, the other side of the emissions is the port side itself. And what are you doing on that part to reduce the emissions at the Port of Rotterdam itself? So if we, if we just look at the uh, uh, emissions related to the ship movement, sea as well as inland, then clearly we have a well-developed uh, shore power program. Uh, inland barges already uh, are largely supplied by shore power, and we have an extensive program now to supply also the large seagoing vessels with shore power, and we seek to decarbonize that effort uh, in this decade. So an extensive program. Um, if we look at the terminal operations, uh, again, extensive programs. We have some we have some zero emission terminals already in, in the port. The industrial facilities is, is more complex, clearly. I mean, we have petrochemical facilities, we have refinery facilities. And we're working towards a 55% reduction in 2030 to become carbon neutral, emission carbon neutral by 2050, uh, whilst retaining earning power and, and, and being of value to society. So not by asking enterprises to leave and stop and cease production, but by reconfiguring their operations, go through transition. And the port itself invests very heavily in facilitating those efforts and truly collaborating with the private enterprises as well as with the public uh, organizations to uh, provide not only the infrastructure, but also the rules, the regulations, the financing, the permits, uh, and it may be related to sustainable aviation fuels that may be related to production of green hydrogen, it may be related to carbon capture and storage, it may be related to using residual heat from the industrial processes. So we have various strands of activities Uh, that will ultimately, collectively, uh, in many steps, uh, address the current uh, 
exposure we, we incur as a board. So a lot of different facets there. Are there any particular projects ongoing right now that you perhaps give a bit more detail on? Yeah, so a very, very exciting project I find is is the, the fact that um, we will be producing green hydrogen in the port. Um, Shell has taken the decision already to build a 200 megawatts electrolyzer. Now, the largest in the world at this juncture is a 20 megawatts electrolyzer. So this is tenfold, 200 megawatts. Um, by the way, in Saudi, they're building a one gigawatt electrolyzer. So it's, it's certainly exponential. But yes, there will be a, a first green hydrogen production facilities will be on stream by the back end of 2024 is the current timeline. We have already taken the decision to build a hydrogen backbone through the port, supplying thus the Shell Purnace refinery facilities with the hydrogen produced at the mass flocters. So, so we're building that stretch of pipeline. And we aim to reach out all the way to Germany for further connectivity and supplying German industrial cluster with hydrogen. Now, the Netherlands will not be in a position to produce sufficient green hydrogen itself. So we have various initiatives now that are very, very promising to import hydrogen. And we seek to import the first green hydrogen by 2025. So we will build a portfolio of available green hydrogen based on local production as well as on imports. And by doing so, allowing the industry to decarbonize and reduce the CO2 footprint. So that's, that's, that's one of the very, very exciting projects. In addition, uh, there's Shell is building a 800 kilotons biofuels facility in the port. And there's two more biofuels organizations, Neste and UPM, both European organizations, Finnish organizations, that have confirmed that they're seriously considering to build a biofuels facility in our port area as well. And the investment decision is imminent. So if I look at the portfolio of activities, it's uh, actually uh, hugely promising. Some very exciting developments there uh, around hydrogen yeah. and biofuels. Um, I guess it's partly touching on my final question I had for you, really, which is if you could give our listeners a bit of idea of future plans for the port. Well, the future plans are along various axes. We would expect to invest uh, some 1.5 billion euros in the next five years or so, and that's only our part. And and the reason I mention that is that we work in a lot of uh, joint venture structures and, and, and private enterprises will have to make the investment at their premises. It's not uh, unreasonable to to uh, multiply by a factor ten or so that will be invested in the port in the next five six years. So that's a huge investment. It will be in hard infrastructure. We're building key walls to extend the, the terminal capacity. Um, that we will uh, be building the pipelines to to transport the hydrogen and or transport the captured CO two to depleted gas fields. Uh, and we will continue to investment, invest in digital solutions to make the logistics value chain more efficient. So all in all, very promising at this juncture, activities created by the port generate some 585,000 jobs in the country. And we expect that to grow and we expect in future, whilst appreciating the, the energy transition and thus reducing our CO2 footprint, uh, we expect the future to be as impactful as, as we currently are. And that's what we aspire to achieve. Uh, we're not steered by volume. Uh, volume doesn't do anything in its own right. Uh, we tend to steer our company and, 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 and the goals that we aspire and the projects that we pursue 
on, on the back of what impact do we have on society. And we believe that it's going to be hugely positive employment, investment, environment, and thus value to country. That is very interesting to hear that you steer it by that impact on society rather than by volumes. Because right. I think when we talk to ports, we all tend to focus on volumes. Volume is relevant, but it's not my key driver. Okay. Um, thank you uh, so much for taking the time. I think that's a very nice place to round up. Thank you, Allard. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Maritime Podcast. Make sure you subscribe on your favourite app to never miss an episode. Until the next episode, stay safe.